Good morning. How you doing today? All right. This is the first time ever I've brought a device on stage. I apologize. I, I feel kind of corrupt already. But I had realized that uh, I, I had one aspect that I needed to read from a selection of a book that, uh, that I've been going through. And so I didn't have it in my notes, and I just pulled it up last minute. So forgive the phone on stage, and I'll make sure it doesn't ring. In fact, why don't you make sure yours doesn't ring as well? Everybody make sure that thing's on silent, all right? Amen? Amen. Especially when you have ringtones that are a little strange. I've heard some of your ringtones. You should hear my father-in-law's ringtone. I, I programmed it for him on purpose. It sounds like a, a, a frog or something like that. So if you ever hear a frog going off in the service, you'll know it's Bob West's cell phone. You like that ringtone, Bob? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 1, as a matter of fact. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be in a very uh, unique uh, portion. Uh, well, we're going to be out uh, throughout God's Word here this morning, uh, but uh, we'll be skipping around from passage to passage, but we will spend a bit of time in Genesis 1, and so we can start there and we can make our way through as, uh, as the sermon develops. We're in a very uh, uh, unique spot in uh, the life of our church. We're, we're putting uh, a pause button on the sermon series in Luke. We've been going through narratives and vignettes in the gospel of Luke, and now we're, we're taking a little time out to start a new series. This series is uh, inspired, really, from uh, the parable in Luke 17, in which the master sees the workers in the field, and, and they come in from the field not having done one of their primary jobs, which is to prepare their master a meal. And what little work they did do in the field, the master was look, look, looked upon that effort and thought, my, that wasn't very good effort. And so the master was displeased with the life, the work of those in the field in Luke 17. And we asked the question last week, well, what does it look like to please the master? What does it look like to please the Lord with all of our life, including the mundane things like plowing the field or tending the sheep like those workers were doing. You see, life is not just about uh, coming in uh, at church on Sunday morning and, and pretending that this, this is the main event of life. No, life is so many things. And on the last day, when we stand before Jesus, he will evaluate the totality of our life. Not just our spiritual life, though that will be a, a huge part of it. He'll evaluate what we did uh, with our family, what we did with our relationships, with our marriage, with our children. He'll evaluate how we responded uh, to um, the, the, the time off that he gave us, the time of leisure, time for play. He'll evaluate how we used a time for rest so that we could be re-energized, so that we could do the work that he had for us throughout our week. There are a great many things that God will evaluate our life by on the last day. And so, in the spirit of that, of the knowledge that Jesus Christ will on the last day evaluate the totality of our life, we are beginning a sermon series entitled The Rest of Life Resurrected. The Rest of Life 
resurrected. What does it look like to have every aspect of our life be resurrected, looked upon through the eyes of Jesus, through kingdom eyes? Look like? What does it look like to look at the totality of our life through the eyes of Christ? And the, where, the place that I want to start first in evaluating the, the totality of our lives is the subject of work. Work. And Pastor Tom and I, as we develop this series in the coming weeks, we'll go through a great many things. But today, we're going to talk about the aspect of work. And you know, we spend a great deal of our time working, don't we? A great deal of our time. In fact, there are 8,760 hours in a year. And a study about a decade ago found that the average American worker spends about 2,000 of those yearly hours working. That represents 23% of your year is spent working. 23% of your entire year, 2014, you will be working. Take away the weekends, and that percentage increases to 30 and sometimes 40%. And I know a great many of you who have mentioned to me how much you've been working overtime lately. Another survey this time a couple decades ago, studied the period between the 1970s and the 1990s. And it determined in that period of time from the 70s to the 90s, the actual amount of leisure time, of vacation time, of rest, of play, enjoyed by the average American shrunk by 37%. While the average work week rose from 41 hours a week to 47 hours a week. And that was... At the end of 19, in the start of the 1990s. Today, it is on the rise even more, given the present state of the economy. An activity that requires so much of our day surely requires some perspective from God's Word. And yet, when was the last time you heard a sermon on the biblical principles of work? When was the last time we, we preached about this matter? I'm guilty of it as a pastor. I, I looked through my files. I couldn't really find a time when I'd spoken directly to the subject of what it means to work. I, I talked about laziness and I, and I talked about you know excellence in the workplace, but just specifically a whole message devoted to the subject of work. I didn't have one. And many churches and pastors don't deal with this subject. And yet it com- comprises 20, 30, sometimes 40% of your year, and we don't talk about it, what would it look like to lay hold of a biblical view of work, a kingdom perspective on work? What would it look like to resurrect our view of work? Uh, But now I hear a little bit of the grumblings. I hear a little bit of the grumblings in the audience, mainly from Glenn. He's in the front row. I can hear it. The grumblings that say, oh, pastor, I don't want to talk about work, right? I don't want to talk about work. It's Sunday, not Monday. Today's my day off. And the last thing I want to do is focus on work. 
Work is work. It's boring. It's arduous. It's mundane. It's part of the curse, right? So let me just get by in my work and let me move on to more important things. Ah, but you see, that perspective on work is precisely the viewpoint that we need to address. Because if we're going to spend 20, 30, sometimes 40% of our year working, we better have a biblical perspective on what it looks like to live out that 20, 30, and 40% of our life. God has a high view of work, a high view of work. And in fact, of all the descriptions used of God in the, both the Old and the New Testament, of all the descriptions used of God, one of the most prominent descriptions used of God is that he is a worker. On your outline, we're going to take a lot of notes today. Jot, grab a pen, you're going to jot down a lot of verses because we're going to be flipping through them so fast. But on your outline, write this down. God is a worker. He's described as a worker in Scripture. God is a worker. I'm, run, I'm going to run through these quickly. Hebrews 1.10, quoting, quoting the psalmist, says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. God the Father is a worker. And so is God the Son, Jesus Christ. In John 9.4, Jesus said, I must work the works of Him who sent me. Jesus went to work. The Spirit of God is also a worker. The Holy Spirit is a worker. 1 Corinthians 12.11, this passage is talking about the distribution of spiritual gifts. That the Holy Spirit takes these spiritual gifts and distributes them throughout the church. And this is what it says of that, that distribution in 1 Corinthians 12.11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things. Distributing to each one individually as He wills. The Spirit's job or task, one of, one of them, is to distribute spiritual gifts in the church. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, workers, workers, workers. From the beginning of creation, God was working. One theologian writes, God is constantly, constantly portrayed in the Bible as a vigorous worker, not merely creator, but also redeemer. Not merely redeemer, but also sustainer. And in the last days, a, I love this, a quality control manager. That is to say, a judge of works. Anybody in quality control? Raise your hand if you're in quality control. I knew Jesse was in there. Terrell's in there, all right? You're looking, you're saying, quality control, quality control. Lord, what do I do with quality control? Look at the end of the scriptures. God is a quality control manager when he judges us. When Christ our Lord judges us on the last day, he's looking at the quality of the work. Truth is, on your outline, God designed people to work. Write that down. God designed people to work. Now we're turning to Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth 
and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves on the earth. There you have it. Right at the very beginning of creation, God is creating man and woman, and He's giving them jobs, tasks, duties, responsibility. He's giving them a vocation. Multiple vocations, as a matter of fact. Among them, to fill the earth, excuse me, among them, to be fruitful and to multiply, that is to say, to to have children, to fill the earth and multiply, and secondly, to fill the earth and subdue it, to fill the earth. That is to say, man and woman are responsible, are, are co-workers with God in filling the earth. Filling it with what? Filling it with goodness and with truth and with righteousness and with good works and with wonderful things that we create with our hands and and with our minds that we might fill the earth and be co-workers, co-creators, if you will, as we build up this earth that God's given to us as a gift. We're to fill the earth and we're to subdue it. I love the verb there, to subdue the earth, because this, this task, this vocation was given before the fall. Think about that for a minute. Subdue the earth. That vocation, that task, was given before the curse of sin fell upon the earth. Which is to say that even in the creation, even in the Garden of Eden, there was a measure of subduing it, of harnessing it. Of, of controlling it, of, of working the land. Theologian Terence Fredheim says this, the verb subdue in Genesis 1.28 indicates that even before the fall, while the, while the creation God made was good, this does not mean that it was tranquil or tame. There was a built-in wildness to it and various kinds of inherent potential for growth and for development. How many of you are in research and development? Anybody in research and development at their company? No? Uh, A few of you, okay. In research and development, you're constantly thinking, what could we do with this? You're thinking outside the box. You're imagining things. Subduing the earth all the way back in Genesis 1. Research, development, Adam and Eve. Think about what you can do to harness this earth that I've given to you as a gift, to make it good, to make it right. To work the land. Work is not a part of the curse. Let me say that as clear as I can. Work is not a part of the curse. We are mistaken to think it is. It is a divinely instituted element of human life. It is initiated at creation. As one man puts it, we should neither demonize nor divinize work. That is to say, we shouldn't call it evil, nor should we call it the only thing that we do, the the only God-ordained task that we have. But work is a component of human life designed by God for us. It's not a result of the curse. The curse did, however, bring an element of toilsomeness to work. We read about that in Genesis 3. We won't turn there just now. But if you were to turn to Genesis 3, you'd find that the curse brought an element of toil to our labors, that the fruit of our labors would now not always correspond to our efforts. 
and that pain would increase in all the labors of life, including in the labor of uh, child delivery. Anybody going to deliver a child anytime soon? Jen? How many days, Jen? Five days. Five days. We have other women that are about to deliver. We're excited for you gals, and we're praying for you. Toilsomeness in labor is a result of the curse. Even toilsomeness in the, the giving of birth. Genesis 3 indicates that, 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 that the labor pains would increase. And just as a little nugget, a little aside, not for today, but for, for later, if it indicates that labor pains would increase, increase, what does it say about labor pains before the fall? It's interesting there in Genesis, before the curse, that God seems to allude to the fact that there stood, could still have been an element of, of pain, but that it would not have been bad or evil or sinful, but that it would have been a, would have been a part of our labor, our effort, our work, that something about our work needs to exert some effort, that we need to feel it, that we need to give it our all. And when it indicates that labor pains would increase as a result of the curse, some theologians speculate that God is therein saying that labor pains were a part of delivery even prior to the curse. But that's only for speculation. All that is to say, exertion, effort, matters. We'll get to that. You say, okay, okay, pastor, I get it. Work is from God. Okay, it's not a a result of the curse. Okay, but man, is it a grind. It's a grind. I just want to keep my head down. I just want to get the job done. I just want to move on. After all, my work is toilsome. It's not fun. And besides, it's not that important anyway, right? Well, that's the response of many, many Americans today. So many Americans are dissatisfied with their work. I won't ask you to raise your hands if you are. But here's the statistics. Less than 20% of people claim that they love what they do. Less than 20% of Americans love what they do. That means that over 80% of people dislike their job. Why? Sometimes, usually the case is they feel that it is unimportant or meaningless, meaninglessness. They wonder, what difference am I making in life? My job is this, and it's so mundane, it's so daily, it's so normal, it's so regular. I feel like I'm not even making a difference in the world. As a pastor, uh, I often receive comments In fact, I received one just two days ago. I received comments from others that say something to the effect of, your job, pastor, is really important. Wow, you have a kind of job that is really meaningful, really substantive. It makes a difference in people's lives. And uh, people often will say something to that effect to me. When I receive that, which is... I think a compliment, of course, to to me and to the work that I do. But when I receive that, I always instinctively rage against it. I've always internally raged against the concept that a pastor's job is somehow superior to or greater than or more meaningful than a lot of other jobs. 
but rarely have I been able to put the importance of every person's work into perspective until I read one theologian's example of eating his morning bagel. Now see, I don't eat bagels very much, and so I would like to change this illustration to an English muffin. (laughs) Because as you know, as you well know, English muffins will be the morning breakfast of choice in the kingdom of God. (laughs) Amen? Donuts? Oh, goodness. It is going to be English muffins, friends, and and so I, I digress. Humor me for a bit as I talk about English muffins. You see, before, before I get to my extremely, extremely important work of my day, which as you well know, as many of you have told me, Pastor, you must have the, the most important job, a very meaningful job. And I, I look upon you and say, why, yes, it's so important. But before I get to the important work of my day, I first eat an English muffin. But you see, that muffin does not just arrive in my mouth without the work of others. There is a farmer who plants and harvests harvests the wheat. There's a worker at the mill who turns that wheat into flour. There's a baker who turns that flour into bread, and not just any kind of bread, but the best kind of bread, an English muffin. Then there was the packager who bagged the muffins, the salesman who sold the muffins to the grocery store, the driver who transported the muffins to the store, the produce stocker who put the bag on the shelf, the cashier who sold me the bag, the bagger who bagged the bag, and that is to say nothing of the car I drove in to get there or the gas that was used in my car or the roads upon which I drove or the toaster that was made for me to toast my bread or the electricity that was used to toast that bread or the butter or the jelly or the cinnamon that was put on top of that bread or the dentist who kept my teeth clean and strong that I might be able to eat that bread. Amen? What did we just do? We just saw a legacy of work. Without my English muffin, I don't get to the important work of my day. And yet without dozens, if not hundreds if not thousands of others who make that English muffin possible for me. The so-called important work that I do could never be done due to hunger or lack of energy. Ben Witherington writes this, the interconnectedness of work and its products can be demonstrated with virtually any item. And it is a reminder to all of us who tend to think of ourselves as individual consumers or as people who support ourselves and are self-sufficient that all these ideas being modern American myths founded on an even bigger myth of radical individualism It is good to remember the interconnectedness of all work and all workers in various ways we need and depend upon each other. And that is not socialist to say. And that is not communist to say. I cannot do 
what many people call a very important work without the work of thousands who help me do what I do. That's just the truth. That's just the truth. You're not self-made. There are elements of your work that are strong and excellent and praiseworthy. But no man or woman is self-made. We are codependent upon one another. We are working together in this portion of life, 20, 30, 40% of it called work that benefits all and that is good and that is right and that should be esteemed every single job. Write this on your outline. All good work should be esteemed. Write that down. All good work should be esteemed. Your job, your job, mundane, regular, routine, unimportant as you think it might be, it contributes to society. It contributes to culture. You are having an imprint upon what's happening in the world. You're making it possible for others to work. Without you, things would suffer. The now deceased American statesman John Gardner who worked under President Johnson, he once said this. He once said, the society which scorns excellence in plumbing because plumbing is a humble activity but yet tolerates shoddiness in philosophy because philosophy is an exalted activity, will have, will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy. Neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water. You don't show disdain for the occupation of a plumber for excellent plumbing work and yet on the flip side say, well, but it's perfectly fine if you have bad philosophy. He says, no. He says, a society that does this, that ignores the work of one, the good work of one, for the bad work of a job that we esteem a bit higher, is a society that will have neither its pipes nor its theories hold water. Your work is good. Your work matters. And even when it seems basic or regular or mundane, remember that it only appears that way. Remember that your work interconnects and interrelates with the work of others. And often, often, Your work interconnects with the work of the gospel. With the work of the gospel. Uh, A writer for Christianity Today, Andy Crouch, has a a large book that he wrote on work, the the title of which leaves me now. I was flipping through some of its pages, and he, he pointed repeatedly to Isaiah chapter 60 when he was speaking about the value of work. Isaiah chapter 60. And why did he point to Isaiah chapter 60? Because in Isaiah chapter 60, Andy Crouch found uh, a picture of the new Jerusalem. The end of days. The new Jerusalem, the city of God. The kingdom of God is here. And there's the new Jerusalem. And what does it say is taking place? Let's turn there. Right in the middle of your Bibles. Isaiah. Isaiah 60. Right after... The Psalms, the Proverbs, right? Turn, turn to Isaiah chapter 60. What does it say? In Isaiah 60, about the Gentiles and what they bring to the New Jerusalem. Look at verse 3. Isaiah 60, verse 3. 
the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters nurse at your side and you shall see and become radiant and your heart shall swell with joy because of the, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. And this is what's given to the new Jerusalem. The wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land. The dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come, bringing gold, bringing incense. They shall proclaim the praises of the Lord. All the flocks, the sheep of Kedar, shall be gathered together to you. And the rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory Jump down to verse 9. Surely the coastlands shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver, their gold with them, to the name of the Lord your God and to the Holy One of Israel because he has glorified you. Andy Crouch points to Isaiah 60 and says this. The new Jerusalem will be furnished with the best of every culture. And that frees us from having to give a religious or an evangelistic explanation for everything we do. The camels of Midian, the sheep from Kedar, the rams of Nebaioth, the golden incense from Sheba, the silver and gold on the ships coming from Tarshish. If the ships of Tarshish and the camels of Midian can find a place in the New Jerusalem, Crouch writes, our work, no matter how secular we think it to be, it can too. Taking care of camels, taking care of sheep, mining for gold and silver, all of these things, incense, all of these things, earthly things, worldly things, with worldly value, earthly value, These are the things that are brought into the new Jerusalem. How much more so what you work on? How much more so the work that you do? We've come this far and we haven't even yet defined work. What is work? Work is this. Again, I'm quoting Witherington, whom I use repeatedly, by the way, throughout this message. I'm I'm very much indebted to him and the work that he did in, in this book. What is work? A great quote here. At the bottom of your outline, any necessary and meaningful task that God calls and gifts a person to do and which can be undertaken to the glory of God and for the edification and aid of human beings, being inspired by the Spirit and foreshadowing the realities of the new creation or the new Jerusalem, work involves calling, vocation, and if done right, ministry. That's an excellent definition of work. Excellent definition of work. And from that, what I want to do is I want to just extrapolate seven points that I want to leave us with today on how we can resurrect a view of work. On the back of your outline, we're going to look at seven ways to resurrect our work. Let's take notes together. Number one, good work is inspired by the spirit and kingdom Worthy. Good work is inspired by the Spirit and kingdom worthy. What does that mean that it's inspired by the Spirit? 
Well, anything, when we use the term inspiration, we're essentially saying that this is, this is something that God would speak to with approval, that God would speak to, would affirm with, with his delight, that he would delight in something that's true and that's good. We, we, see, we speak of the scriptures as being inspired, and by that we mean it is God-breathed. It's the truth of God. It's something that is good and true and pure and, and whole and holy. And when we speak about work being inspired by the Spirit, what we're saying is, is that our work, whatever it, is to, whatever it is that we are going to do, needs to be something that is good and holy and true and right. The converse of that is, as Christians, you and I have an obligation to avoid work that is destructive to the work of God. You and I have an obligation to avoid work that takes advantage of people. You and I have an obligation to avoid work that puts others at risk. To avoid work that sells people something that is harmful or evil or destructive. Or that markets products in ways that are deceitful or untrue. We must ask ourselves anytime we're going to work at anything, we must ask ourselves does this activity help or hinder the kingdom of God? Does this activity promote the cause of Christ? Does it glorify God? Can it be offered to God as something praiseworthy? Is this work that foreshadows the kingdom of God? Is this work that could be done in the kingdom of God? Inspired by the Spirit, our work must be true and good. It doesn't, need, it doesn't mean that it needs to be altogether spiritual or that the totality of the work needs to be focused on spiritual ends. No. Camels of Midian, gold and incense, silver. So much of the material world will be brought as gifts to the new Jerusalem. Our work is a gift to be given to God. But we need to do it in goodness and in truth. We need to avoid work that is uninspired of God. And if we are working in deceitful ways, harmful ways, destructive ways, if we're selling a product that we would never buy, if we're offering a product that we know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't buy this. This is a ripoff. This is destructive. This product isn't worth buying. If we can say that about what we're doing, you need to stop doing it. Inspired by the Spirit. Kingdom worthy. Ask, ask yourself, is my job kingdom worthy? Is it worthy of the kingdom of God? Or is it just one-upping people? Taking advantage of them? Am I just kind of milking a, a system? Just for the sake of money. Inspired by the Spirit. Kingdom worthy. Secondly, good work is called of God. Called of God. Now there are two questions that every human being asks in life. They ask one question when they're young, and they ask the second question when they're like midlife or a little bit older, sometimes a little later in life. 
The first question they ask is when they're young. And it is, what do I want to be when I grow up? Right? What do I want to be when I grow up? We all love that question. We ask that question of the youth. We say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I can't tell you how many times I've asked that of my kids. Bennett, Mallory, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'm always excited to hear their answer. But you know, this is not always the right question. In fact, it's, it's very often the wrong question to ask of a young person. Because you see, that question presupposes that number one, the person knows what they want, which at a young age, with their brain not very well developed in, in, in their youth, in, in that time frame of life, sometimes they're not thinking that straight. So you might want to discourage asking that question early on. But, but secondly, it presupposes that what we desire, that what we want, 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 is somehow correlated to what we ought to be doing at all times. That my desire, my innate wants, that the me time of answering that question means this, and this is what I'm going to do. What if our wants betray how God designed us? What if our wants and the whimsical nature of our heart betrays how God called us? You see, he shaped each one of us for a special purpose. More about that in just a minute. But you see, there's also a second question that often plagues us, especially in the middle or latter portions of our life, a question that when not properly answered can often lead to a midlife crisis or or even depression. And it is this. Is this all there is to my life? What else should I be doing with my life? Is this all there is? And that is often the question asked of of moms with children, of dads at in work cubicles in vocations that they never saw themselves being in. It's asked of, of men and women in their midlife, in their latter stages of life, they look up and they go, Lord, is this all there is for me? Is this what I spend twenty, thirty, forty percent of my life doing, really? Is there nothing more? To young and to old, I want to say clearly, pay close attention to the calling of God. Pay close attention to the calling of God. Because on the one hand, every single one of us, every single one of us, have the same calling. You know what your calling is? Your calling is to carry out the great commandment and the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And the great commission, to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's your calling. That's every single one of your calling. So when the young person stands up robustly and pridefully and says, I'm going to do this with my life, And conversely, when those in their midlife and latter stages of life stand up and say, Lord, is this all that there is? Both young and old should remember and should be grounded, grounded deeply by the knowledge that I already have a calling. First and foremost, I am called to love God, to love my neighbor. 
I am called to make disciples. I am called to spread the word of the gospel to other people. I am called as a Christian to do these things. I always have a calling. Say that with me. I always have a calling. Say it. I always have a calling. Say it again. I always have a calling. You do. Young person, don't be so defiant and proud that you think you can do whatever you want. You are first grounded in that highest calling. Those later in life, you are grounded in a calling. Don't lose sight of it. Don't let your earthly vocation, important as it is, blind you from the fact that if if you're unsatisfied with it, don't let that blind you from the fact that you have a calling. And that that earthly vocation, while part of your life, is not the entirety of your life. We all have a calling. In one sense, our calling is is the same, but in another sense, our calling is unique. In Ephesians, excuse me, in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, the scriptures talk about spiritual gifts, about the Spirit of God working, distributing gifts in the church to each as he sees fit, to each given a measure of faith. In the church, in the house of God, gifts are distributed. Calling is distributed. Each man and woman's work is distributed. And they're expected to live and work and be in that calling. That's what it's like in the church. My question to you is, how much more so do you think that is true in the world? Surely our calling in the world gets a foretaste from our calling in the church. And that is to say our gifts, our aptitude, what we've learned, our experiences, our training, all of these things help develop the call of God upon our life in our earthly vocation. As much as you're able to, we're to endeavor to find work that is best suited for you, that is designed for you, designed for you. John Topper, raise your hand, John. I'm going to pick on you in just a minute. That man was designed to be a policeman. Designed. You should see what that guy does up in uh, HB. It's uh, you don't you want to get some stories on the work of that guy as a policeman? I ask him every day, and there's always a new story. He was called, gifted, experienced, trained. He's serving right in the slot where God called him to serve. Endeavor to find where you're best suited to work. Because just as in the church, so also in the world, God is calling you. He's calling you. Pay attention to that call. Don't accept the wrong call. Don't pass God's call to someone else. Here you do it. Don't flat out reject God's call and say, no, I'm not going to do it. Mark Twain said this, blessed is, he says this, he questions, who was it who said, blessed is the man who has found his work? Whoever it was, he had the right idea in his mind. Mark you, he says, his work, not somebody else's work. The work that is really a man's own work is play and not work at all. Cursed is the man who has found another man's work and cannot lose it. When we talk about the great workers of the world, we really mean the great players of the world. Blessed is the man 
who has found his work. Blessed is the woman who has found her work. Remain in it. Ask God, God, what are you calling me to do? And be open to what he's going to say. Be open to what he's going to say. How often do we, we think we hear the call of God and think, yeah, but I don't want to do that. Uh, I'm, that's beneath me, Lord. That's not a prominent job. God's whispering back, but I've gifted you and trained you and, and, and given you talents to do this. Listen to the call of God upon your life as you work. And as, you, as you're given opportunity to find a new job, which I know some of you uh, have right now and others of you, uh, you know, unfortunately, the way this economy is going, some of us have been losing our work and we have new opportunity to look for work. When you have new opportunity to look for work, ask God, say, God, what is my calling? What do you want me to do? And number three, this is so important, good work is vocation that exemplifies our calling. Good work is vocation that exemplifies our calling. That is to say, vocation is what we do in response to God's call. We listen for God's call. God is initiating that. He's, he's speaking to our hearts saying, this is, this is what I want of you. This is what you're good at. This is what I made you for. We hear the call of God, and then vocation is doing work that is based on the call. Discernment is needed, as is humility. For God might be calling you to do something that the world does not esteem, something that you feel is a little beneath you, or that others would tell you, oh, that's beneath you. You're better than that. But it's the call of God that matters. Not how man looks upon our work. Not upon what others think of our work. It's what God called us to do. That's what is to be our vocation. So we've got to have priorities. Priorities to know what is more important. What vocations would best fulfill my calling? God, what vocations would best fulfill my calling? You don't just choose any kind of job. Because it pays well. Oh my goodness. How many times do we choose a job that pays a little better and yet is completely out of line with our calling? Oh, but it pays better. Yeah, but you're miserable at it. You're not called to it. That means you're probably not the best one for it. Pursue vocation that you're called to. And let me pause briefly and say to some of you today, many of you today, who work and yet don't get paid, let me say this, vocation that exemplifies our calling is not always work that is paid. But that does not mean it is not work. Caring for children, cleaning house, caring for the yard, doing housework, raising a garden which puts food on the plate. These are things that rarely get paid, yet they are worthwhile works that can exemplify one's calling. It is an enormous mistake to evaluate the worth of our work based on how much we are paid. Just look at professional sports today. 
<laughs> Look at professional sports. How many millions upon millions upon millions? I know one baseball player who went to Seattle for $240 million. $240 million to play baseball. If that is not evidence that sometimes the, the, the worth or the value of our work is not always compensated in proportion to what it ought to be, I don't know what is. A vocation that is worthwhile is not necessarily paid. A vocation that is worthwhile is not necessarily paid well. A vocation that is worthwhile is sometimes never paid well. But it's the call of God. And His call pays well. Amen? His call pays. There's dividends to working within His call. Dividends that you won't get on this earth, per chance, although you'll get it in part, the satisfaction of knowing that you're within the will of God, but dividends that will be ultimately paid in the kingdom of God for heeding God's call. So any of you out there, particularly, I think of, think of moms or those at home caring for children, my goodness, don't ever think that your vocation, which presently is probably very much so to be a nurturer of children. Don't ever think that your vocation, because it is unpaid, is somehow worthless or meaningless. That is so not true. It is worthwhile when you're in the call of God. Number four, good work is achieved by the fruit of the Spirit. Good work is achieved by the fruit of the Spirit. Quickly now, if it's not done with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control, it's probably work that shouldn't be done. Give up work that is dishonest. Avoid laziness. Pursue excellence. Work should be done in the fruit of the Spirit. I know of, I know of one individual who gave up work, who pushed work away from him. Because he saw the work that it entailed and he said, that's dishonest. I can't do that. There was a, there was a marketing of a product. And in the marketing of a product, the, the, the business that was marketing, that wanted to market this product, the way they were marketing it, they were, they were fuzzing the details. They were doing something with the product that it could not do. And in fact, they were showcasing the, 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 the results of the product that were completely artificial completely artificial results and this person looked upon this marketing scheme and this person being in marketing they looked upon it and they said you know what i want nothing of that and they told their boss i'm not going to work this job you fire me if you want i'm not going to work this job this product is disingenuous That's someone right here in our church. They didn't lose their job. Praise God for that. Are we creating and cultivating things that have a chance of furnishing the new Jerusalem? Asked Ben Witherington. Psalm 90 verse 17, establish the work of our hands. Establish the work of our hands, God. Make it meaningful. Make it valid. Make it true. Make it good. Working with integrity, working in the fruit of the Spirit, often, often entails suffering. It may mean you'll lose your job to preserve your integrity. 
And if that happens, count it all joy, friends, knowing that Jesus' chief work was to suffer too, as he suffered on the cross. His work was a work of impeccable integrity, and he went to the cross in humility, in suffering, of utter dependence upon, upon the Lord. And if it comes to that in your work, so be it. Suffer, show humility, depend on God, and say, God, I will work, but I will not do this. Say to your boss, boss, I will work hard for you, but I will not do this. Fire me if you must. My integrity is more important than my job. My integrity is more important than my paycheck. I will not do this. That is resurrecting work. Five, good work is filled with ministry. Good work is filled with ministry. Colossians 3, turn there if you'd like. Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, do in, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Jumping down to verse 23. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Do it all for the Lord. Consider your work, your deeds, what you do with your hands, an offering to God. Your spiritual act of worship. Consider it a ministry. And look for ways to do ministry at work. Oh my goodness, what a way to redeem work. What a way to redeem work. You think of the drudgery of it, the toilsomeness of it. You're going to the cubicle or wherever you, wherever you work and you're thinking, this is meaningless. And yet look around. You have people, co-workers, who don't know Jesus. You have people who are hurting. You have, you have women in that office who have a husband that's mistreating them. You have men in that office who are addicted to pornography and who think that, 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 that sex is the end all of life. You have young people in that office who are just getting started and think that making money is the greatest thing they can do in life. You have people who are hurting in your work. People who need the gospel of Jesus. Minister. Love them. Care for them. Buy them a meal. Invite them over for dinner. Reach out to them and love them. Consider your work a place of ministry. They're watching you. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Colossians 4, 5 says. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Because they're watching you. They know something's different. Good work is filled with ministry. Six, good work, and this is important, good work is only part of who you are. Good work is only part of who you are. Please don't miss this. Please don't miss this. Witherington writes this, we can never be reduced to our individual labors. The true source of our identity is not our job, but the God who adopts us as children in Christ's name. We are not who we are because of what we do, but because of whose we are. We're God's. It's here that uh, we should look briefly at workaholics. Because you see, a workaholic is someone who, generally speaking, defines them by what they, what they are at their job. 
A workaholic is someone who, who loves their job usually or, or, or at least is just wholeheartedly devoted to it. A workaholic is someone who hasn't achieved enough success. There's always more money to make. A workaholic is someone who defines themselves by how much they make. A workaholic is often someone who is unsatisfied with their marriage or with home life. And so they devote themselves 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week at work to escape. Theologian Miroslav Wolf says this about workaholism. He says, we have a narcissistic preoccupation with self-realization and being a self-made man or woman. And we often try to achieve this through our own hard work. But in the end, he says, this amounts to merely self-worship. A workaholic is worshiping self. A workaholic is saying nothing else matters but me and my work. My family doesn't matter. My wife, my kids, my husband, my family, they don't matter. A workaholic is someone who says, I am just going to work and make money and succeed and define everything I do through the lens of vocation, vocation, vocation. Hey, what's your name? Oh, my name's Joe. What do you do? That's the next question always asked. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? A workaholic thinks that's who I am. I am what I do. But really, it's self-worship. It's not identifying ourselves with the full perspective that God has of us. Is my sense of identity so bound up in what I do that I've become a workaholic just to validate my existence and give myself a sense of importance, worth, and value? Is my identity so bound up in what I do that I've become a workaholic just to validate my existence and give myself a sense of importance, worth, and value? That's a question Witherington asks of us. Solutions to workaholism? Solutions to knowing that that good work is only part of who we are? Be a whole and complete person. You are not just what you do. (laughs) You, You have family. You may have a spouse. You may have children. You have a church. You have hobbies. You have communities. You have neighbors. You are physical. You are emotional. You are spiritual. You are mental. You are relational. You are missional. You are so many more things than just vocation. You are a whole person. And you need to look upon the totality of your life and remember that at the last day, Jesus is not going to stand before you and say, hey, uh, how many hours did you work a week? 60? Excellent. Here's a crown. No. Will work be a question that Jesus asks? Yes. Then he'll ask, how was your marriage? How were your children? Were you present with them? Were you engaged with them? How were you with your neighbors? How was your spiritual life? How was your prayer life? Did you read my word? Did you join the community of the church? Did you participate in the body of Christ? How many more questions will Jesus ask other than did you work 60 hours a week? Did you make six figures? Really? 
What does Jesus care? Be a whole person. Secondly, have a, have a theology of enough. This is important. Have a, write this down. Have a theology of enough. A theology of enough says, in accordance with Philippians 4, I have learned to be content with whatever I have, Paul says. I know what it is to have little. I know what it is to have plenty. And in any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being well-fed, of going hungry, of having plenty, of being in need, and I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Philippians 4, 11 and 13. Christians need to cultivate a theology of enough. Enough! Enough work. Enough money. You don't need to make that much money to live life. You don't need to make that much money to substitute and somehow pay for and make amends for the deterioration of your marriage and of your kids. You can't make enough money to make amends for that. You can't work enough hours and somehow substitute, well, this makes up for a bad marriage. No, it's not how it works. There is a theology of enough And while all of us, Witherington writes this, while all of us need food, clothing, and shelter, if we are primarily working for things that are luxuries and far beyond the necessities of life, then we are working for the wrong reasons in the wrong ways to the wrong ends. Amen? It is not about money. Golly, it's not about luxury. Luxury? You think think this is luxury on earth? You don't know what luxury is. Until you have great wealth in the kingdom of God. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do not work for luxury. Do not work for luxury. Work for food. Work for shelter. Work for clothing. Work to provide the basic necessities for your family. And if more work means the deterioration of your, of your marriage and of your children, would you give it up? Who cares? Put food on the plate, put a roof over your head, put clothes on your back, and don't worry about the luxury. You may not go on that cruise. You may not go on that great vacation. You may not drive that great car. You may not live in that big of a house. And who cares? Because you'll have saved your marriage. You'll have saved your kids. I, uh, oh, how many times? How many times would I wish to, to say to some, you're working for luxury, for, for just leisure. What a waste. You're working yourself to the bone just for that. Pay attention to your spouse, to your children, to the some of the some of the greater things of life. Be a whole person, have a theology of enough rest and play and worship and be, be complete. We'll talk more about resting and playing and worship later because that's part of the rest of life and that's important. Rest, rest is so important. Seventh and finally, good work, and this is important, good work is never done. Neil, I thought you just said, don't be a workaholic. I did. But now you're saying good work is never done. That's right. It's never done. In many cases, uh, in many cultures, the idea of the good life is the life that, that includes no work. Not true in the scripture. Not true in the scripture. 
There's no such thing as retirement in the Scripture. And anyone freed up from earthly vocation in the Scripture, guess what they're doing in the New Testament? Guess what they're doing? If they're freed up from an earthly vocation, guess what they're doing in the church, in the New Testament? They're working in the church. Orphans, widows, widowers, those uh, who have come to a point where they can no longer work. Or maybe they provided for themselves enough that they don't need to work. Guess where they're working in the New Testament? Right here. They're working in the church. They're leading in the church. They're serving in the church. They are not retired. They've simply changed vocations. They're not making a paycheck anymore, but they are building up for themselves the greatest paycheck of all, the work of the kingdom of God. Heaven will not even be a workless paradise. Quite the opposite. Work will be resurrected to its perfect and original sense as the curse of sin is removed. The toil of, uh, the toil of labor will also be removed. And as we put our hearts and minds and hands to the kingdom work that is ahead of us, we will find that it will bring forth abundant fruit in the kingdom of God. Work to bless others. All things belong to God, and the believer's job is to engage in good and honest labor, to be a steward of God's resources, an approach meant to lead to sacrificial giving, not to making money hand over fist, so says Witherington. Sacrificial giving. If you've earned a lot, you're retired, or if you're earning a lot in your work on earth right now, you're earning a a, a large sum of money, an exorbitant amount of money, guess what your job is to do now? Is to bless others is to share it with others, not to hoard it. Winston Churchill once said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. The rest of life, resurrected, work. Oh, there are so many other things I wanted to say. I, uh, Witherington's book alone, I had 114, uh, 114 quotations that I tried to whittle down for this sermon. I wanted to say more to employers. And if you're an employer, I want you to email me if, if you so dare. Because my goodness, what the scriptures have to say to employers. Such high standards. What the scriptures have to say to the attitude of a worker. Oh, if you're begrudging your work, you think it's just a, a, a drudgery. Oh, the scriptures have so much to say to you about performing work in excellence. So many things that could be said, but we've just skimmed the surface. But what have we done? We've taken what is 20, 30, 40% of your life and we've resurrected it. Will you look upon your work with new eyes? Will you look upon your earthly work with new eyes? That is the task before you. That's the vocation. It is before you now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to resurrect work. We want to resurrect all of life. Lord, help us to do it. We are mistaken that work is a part of the curse. It's not. It's a part of your design, God. And it's toilsome, and it's arduous, and it's hard at times. Oh, but Lord, you've given us so many ways in which we can look at it through your lens see it for the good, the inherent good that it brings and how it paves the way for others to do what we might even think is even greater work, even though all of the work is important. Lord, you are a worker. 
You've called us as workers. Help us to find vocations that fit your calling. Fit your calling, God. Fit it like hand to glove. And that we might be fulfilled as we exercise our work with a view to the kingdom of God. We love you, Lord. Would you resurrect our work? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.